You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is The Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is Wednesday, April 14th, which means it's the exact time of year when no matter what coat you decide to put on when you go outside, it's gonna be the wrong coat. It's either too cold for a light coat, or it's gonna be too hot for a heavy coat. That's why, when I go outside, I always wear the same coat, a super long trench coat with nothing on underneath. Wait, what? Anyway, coming up on tonight's show, we talk about the latest developments in the police killing of Dante Wright, how stay-at-home moms are finally getting their due, and America is definitely pulling out of Afghanistan this time. So, let's do this, people. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is The Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with the biggest announcement today that didn't involve The Bachelor. I'm talking about Afghanistan, the country that, much like the bathroom at a chili cook-off, is almost always occupied. The United States has now been in Afghanistan for nearly 20 years. And today, President Joseph Retreat Biden said enough is enough. President Biden announcing he will withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th. We cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan, hoping to create ideal conditions for the withdrawal and expecting a different result. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. I will not pass this responsibility to the next president. Wow. What a nice gift Joe Biden is giving to Dwayne The Rock Johnson when he becomes president. Although to be honest, I was secretly hoping that The Rock would get to end the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, because he would have done it in style. But yes, the war in Afghanistan may finally be over. And people, it's about time. It's been what, 19 years? No war should ever be old enough to serve in itself. I will say though, I find it a little weird that Biden is withdrawing on 9-11. I mean, first of all, breaking up on your anniversary, that's just mean. And second, should he be basing huge decisions like this on the date that just sounds the best? We can't let this forever war continue one more moment. But let's wait a few more months for some nice symmetry. You know, it's numbers, I believe in numbers. Now, of course, all of this is assuming that America actually does leave. Because don't forget, America has been trying to get out of Afghanistan for what, 10 years now? Obama said it, Trump said it, hell, this guy said it. We are leaving in 2014, period. To be fair, Biden didn't know what year it was when he said that. Now, obviously not everyone is celebrating this decision. Biden is getting a lot of criticism from people who say that if America leaves Afghanistan, then it will become a failed state. And that is a real danger. But on the other hand, America has been there for 20 years. Is it supposed to stay there forever? Because if that's gonna be the case, then I mean, America should at least make Afghanistan a US state. And the good news with that is, it would eliminate Afghanistan's terrorism problem completely because we all know that once terrorists are American, they're not terrorists anymore. They just frustrated citizens who are having a bad day. Moving on to sports news. The Minnesota Timberwolves are the best team in the NBA, named after puppy dogs. And now they're getting to know their new owner. 
Former MLB star Alex Rodriguez is reportedly part of a new ownership group for the NBA's Minnesota Timberwolves. Here's what the team's 19-year-old Rookie of the Year candidate, Anthony Edwards, said about A-Rod's ownership bid when he was asked about it by reporters yesterday. Watch. Do you have any thoughts about him? Are you an A-Rod fan at all growing up or anything like that? What do you think about what he might bring to the team? A fan? What do you mean? Like, who is he? The baseball player, Alex Rodriguez? Yeah, no, nah, I, I don't know who that is. Okay. I know he's going to be the owner, but I don't, I don't, I don't know nothing about baseball. <laughs> Rodriguez took the opportunity to introduce himself to Edwards in a post on Instagram, writing, Hi, Anthony, I'm Alex. Oh, okay, okay, this is embarrassing, but let's give the guy a break. I mean, he's 19. You know, there are some things that 19-year-olds today just don't know about. Like, either of these things could be A-Rod. They don't know. You can't assume that teenagers are gonna know every middle-aged famous person, except Matt Gates, because his photo is posted at the security desk in everyone's dorm. And to be honest, it could have been worse for this kid. I mean, at least A-Rod wasn't actually there. God knows, I've been in situations where I was talking to a famous person and I didn't know who they were. Thank you so much for joining me, uh, Mr. Buddy. I am very happy to be here with you, Trevor. I have to say, I am a big fan of your music. <laughs> yeah, I found out afterwards, that guy is on a podcast. <sighs> and finally, some good news for all full-time parents looking to get back into the non-childcare job market. You can now update your resume. LinkedIn is making changes to catch up with popular demand. Mothers and fathers who have stopped working to become caregivers will now have a way to reflect that on their LinkedIn accounts. The company added titles like stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad and removed the need to link that title to a company or employer. Thank you. If you ask me, this is long overdue. Stay-at-home moms and dads should also have the opportunity to have LinkedIn do absolutely nothing for them. Seriously though, stay-at-home parents deserve this recognition because before, if you were home raising your kids, your resume just looked like you were unemployed for like a chunk of years. But parenting is a job. I mean, it's one of the hardest jobs actually. It's also the only job where if your boss pees on you, you can't sue them. I will say, as good as this is, employers still have to be careful and make sure that they get all the details. Because a candidate who's a stay-at-home mom to two young kids, that could be a great employee. But a candidate who's a stay-at-home mom to 17 cats, that's a red flag. Not to mention, this could be bad news for some kids because now their moms could get hired away to be another kid's mom. Mommy, don't go. I love you. Oh, I love you too, honey. But Susie's giving me dental, so I'm out. But let's move on to our main story, which is once again, the police, the group that NWA didn't want to marry or kill. For three days, the people of Minnesota and the entire country have been mourning and protesting over the death of Dante Wright. And today, the police officer who pulled the trigger was put on notice. Another night of unrest in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. Some demonstrators used a line of umbrellas to shield themselves as police fired off flashbangs. The protest coming hours before an expected announcement today on possible charges for Wright's death. The officer who shot him has been arrested. Agents with the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension say they've taken former Brooklyn Center police officer Kim Potter into custody. Potter was booked on second-degree manslaughter charges in the death of Dante Wright. Yes, 
The officer who killed Dante Wright was charged with second-degree manslaughter just today. And look, I think it's good that she's being charged, but let's be honest, that doesn't mean much on its own. I mean, charging a police officer is like announcing that you're withdrawing from Afghanistan. I'm not gonna hold my breath for results. Now, I don't think there's any one change that we could make to police procedure or equipment or funding that would fix the entire problem of how cops treat black people. But the mayor of Brooklyn Center, where the killing of Dante Wright took place, did make one interesting point that I found very revealing. As of this moment, uh, I don't believe any one of our, of our officers uh, live in Brooklyn Center. Uh, that is uh, something that we are aware of. We do feel very strongly that we, that we, we need uh, officers to be uh, from the community. Obviously, not every officer can live in the city where they work. Uh, I, I don't think that that would be feasible or practical, but there, sh there, there is a, um, a huge importance to having a, uh, a significant number of your officers uh, living in the community where they serve. Yeah, the mayor is completely right, and that is a startling thing to hear. Not a single one of his city's police officers actually live in the city that they police, which is a huge problem. When a cop is taking you downtown, he shouldn't have to ask you how to get downtown. And it matters when you're not policing your own community, when you're an outsider, because then you've been sent into enforce. You're an occupying force, because it's human nature to treat people differently when you're not from there. You know, when you go to your neighbor's house, you're respectful, you're courteous. When you go to a hotel room in a different city, I mean, that's when things get covered in semen for no good reason. Plus, it's harder to brutalize people when you live in the same community. You're less likely to body slam someone to the ground when your moms might be in the same book club. And if you wanna see how different groups are policed in America, you don't have to look any further than the Capitol riots, where we're still finding out just how much leeway a violent mob of white conservatives was given. We are learning more about the advance warnings Capitol Police received leading up to the January 6th insurrection. According to a new Inspector General's report reviewed by the New York Times, police were warned three days before the violent attack, including a potential for violence, which, quote, Congress itself is the target. The report found that officers were instructed by their leaders not to use their most aggressive tactics to hold off the mob. That would include things like stun grenades. Think about that. They knew that a violent group was coming after Congress itself. Congress. The place where America's most important laws are filibustered, but they still told the police not to get too aggressive. Now, this report didn't exactly explain why this order was given, but if you ask me, this is what happens when police see you as people. They give you the benefit of the doubt. And that's really what the truth is. America is a country where white people who are coming to storm the Capitol are given the benefit of the doubt. But black people just going about their lives are treated like they're about to storm the Capitol. And look, I'm not saying that the cops should be maximally aggressive with citizens, but I mean, there's gotta be a happy medium between he's driving while blacks shoot him and they're storming the government. Well, let's see where this goes. Let's see, I just wanna see how it turns out. Yeah, I wanna see what they're doing. And if there ever was a time and a place to be aggressive, I feel like January 6th would have been it. I mean, Congress was certifying the election. They were actually doing something. Do you know how rare that is? 
It's like pandas mating. There can't be any disturbances or they'll get spooked and it won't happen again for years. And look, I know it's exhausting to keep having to deal with this shit over and over and over again. And I'm sure there are people out there who are like, well, you know what, why even bother protesting? You know, Derek Chauvin's trial is on right now and they're still shooting black people. But marching in the streets and challenging the system actually does make a difference. Just look at this story about a police incident from 15 years ago that's finally getting a rewrite. Former Buffalo police officer Carrie Horn is celebrating a major legal victory this morning. Judge Dennis Ward ruled she's owed a full pension. Horn was fired after she intervened to stop another officer from using excessive force during an arrest in 2006. Judge Ward also ruled Horn is owed two years of back pay. In his decision, he wrote, quote, while the Eric Garners and George Floyds of the world never had a chance for a do-over, at least here, the correction can be done. Yeah, that's right. This former Buffalo police officer literally fought a fellow cop to stop him from putting a handcuffed suspect into a chokehold, which must have been really confusing for the guy being arrested. He must have thought this was the most elaborate good cop, bad cop routine ever. But then, Officer Horn was fired for doing that, which actually tells you a lot. Because people always say, police aren't a problem, it's just a few bad apples. But in one of the rare incidents where there was a good apple who tried to step up, what happened? The system turned against her and protected the bad apple. The only good news is that now, thanks to a law passed in Buffalo last year, she's getting her pension back, she's getting her salary back, and she's finally getting the recognition that she deserves. And remember, that law was only passed because of the pressure of the Black Lives Matter movement. And yes, it may be a small step, but every step that holds the police more accountable to the community that they're supposed to protect I think that's a step worth marching for. All right, when we come back, I'll be talking to Elizabeth Nyamayaro, the former United Nations senior advisor about gender equality. And Issa Rae is still joining us on the show. So don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My first guest tonight is Elizabeth Nyamayaro. She's a former United Nations senior advisor and founder of the He For She movement. She's here to talk about her upcoming memoir about her journey as a girl from Africa whose near-death experience inspired her to become a humanitarian. So, Elizabeth Nyamayaro, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm so happy to be here, Trevor. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, You have lived quite the life, and now you have written a memoir about it. You know, many kids dream of becoming astronauts or firefighters or, or doctors. You had an interesting dream. Your dream growing up was to work at the United Nations. That means you either had a really enlightened childhood or you were one of the most boring children around. Which one was it? (laughs) Maybe a combination of both. I don't know. But I think a lot has to do with where I come from, you know, where we come from. We come from a continent that is very much about the community. So I grew up in a small African village in Zimbabwe where I was raised by my gogo and my grandmother. And I had a beautiful childhood. And in Africa, we grew up as part of a community and we took care of each other. We shared our food together. We wanted for nothing in my village. But then when I was eight years old, a severe drought hit our village and literally devastated us. 
our rivers dried up, our crops wilted, our livestock perished, and we're left with nothing to eat and nothing to drink. Wow. And one day I was just so weak from hunger, Trevor, I collapsed on the ground, and in my young mind, I thought I was going to die. I had not eaten for three days. But then a miracle happened. This aid worker with the United Nations found me, the girl in the blue uniform, that's what she was wearing, and she gave me a bottle of porridge and literally saved my life. And I remember after I was able to speak, I asked her why she was there because she was African like me, but I'd never seen her before. Right. She was not from my village. And she said to me, I'm here because as Africans, we must uplift each other. Huh. Again, I was eight years old. D didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time. But two years later, I found out that this girl in the blue uniform worked for the United Nations. And it just became my dream. I just thought I want to be just like her so that maybe one day I can save just the lives of others in a similar way that my life had been saved. And so that was the impetus. And of course, decades later, I joined the UN and I became the girl in the blue uniform. Your, your memoir talks through this journey and, and it takes us on a journey that you have lived. Um, you know, the title, the title of your book is I Am a Girl from Africa, you know, and, and what's great about it is it, it touches on, on so many girls and women's lives from Africa in Africa and really across across the world. When, when, when we look at your story, there's one theme that I notice consistently throughout the book and that is the theme of Ubuntu. You know, and so for some people in the US, they might think of Ubuntu as like an operating system, but, but Ubuntu, where we're from, has a very different meaning. Tell us a little bit about why Ubuntu was so important to you as a theme that you carried through your book and your life. Yeah, so Ubuntu is this ancient African philosophy that is very powerful. It literally means I am because we are. And it recognizes that we are all connected by our shared humanity. My first understanding of the word actually was through my Gogo. So like you, I mean, I loved your book, by the way. And Thank your you. Gogo is literally my Gogo. And so she taught me about Ubuntu when I was six years old. We're just come from a very, very long liberation struggle, trying to liberate our country, Zimbabwe, from British colonial rule. And we had a difficult choice because the country was a lot more divided because colonialism, as you said in, in your book, uh, Trevor, it pitted us against each other as Africans. Right. And so we right. were so much more divided. And we had to find a way to heal as a country. And we evoked this Ubuntu spirit as a way to heal. Um, and again, what was remarkable for me is 10 years later, you did a similar thing in South Africa when Nelson Mandela became the first president that once again, at the end of anti-apartheid, he evoked Ubuntu. So Ubuntu is this really powerful tool that enables us to really see the humanity in each other, to practice compassion towards one another. And it's also how I was raised. It's this belief that you're part of a community. And if you're part of a community, you also have to be part of uplifting that community. So that's what inspired the book, that it's, it's really, I'm, the, I'm literally the embodiment of what Ubuntu is, that I am because we are. You, you seem to have taken that theme to heart when you, when you were part of founding the He For She campaign, which um, was lauded for what it stood for and what it continues to stand for, but really came to prominence um, 
when, 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 when people started hearing it, started going viral online, you know, people said, wow, what is this? And I think it was actually Emma Watson who, 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 who yeah. gave it a shout out in, you know, on her, on her platforms online. And people were like, well, what is this he for she campaign? A really interesting idea because oftentimes when people talk about women's safety, you know, oftentimes the burden is put on women. People go, oh, why did you dress like that, ladies? Or should you have been out at that time? And, you know, these rape stories, I feel bad for you, but what responsibility do you bear? You came out with a completely different idea, he for she. Could you explain a little bit about that and why you thought this approach could help? So before I get into that, the other moment for he for she was a certain Trevor Noah was part of an event at the MoMA on the second day anniversary, <laughs> then it became really, really cool. You know, it was like cool and then became like really, really cool when Trevor Noah supported. So thank you for doing that, Trevor. No, but my yeah, pleasure. She was really inspired by this African philosopher of Ubuntu because I realized that there was such a division in terms of how we look at gender inequality, right? It was seen as a woman, an issue for women led by women and men were almost kind of not engaged as much as they should because, mm -hmm. but then they should, right? Because at the end of the day, as you rightly said, the men should be the ones not abusing women. We right. can't put the responsibility on women to say, don't abuse me. And so I saw an opportunity to bring men as part of the conversation and as part of the solution so that we as a collective, again, because of our shared humanity, we can actually work together to end this really, really devastating issue you're always looking to give back. You're always looking to contribute. You're trying to find ways to get governments involved because I mean, I, I've talked to this uh, and, and I know you have as well. I always tell people, governments are the only ones who can fix it. Philanthropy is a, a drop in the bucket that can help in the right direction, but really you need the scale of governments to fix a lot of the systemic and endemic issues that we face. You um, have a wonderful initiative that, that, that you are a part of with this book. Tell me a little bit about it. When people are buying your books, they're also going to be contributing to books going to children in Africa. Yes. So my book, I'm a Girl from Africa, is out next week on Tuesday, April the 20th. And as part of the pre-order campaign, we are donating for each pre-order a book to girls in Africa. And this was so important to me, Trevor. You know, the book is called I Am A Girl from Africa, not The Girl, because I know that my story is one of millions. And I wanted to make sure that girls who come from a humble background such as mine are able to read this story. And again, representation matters, right? For them to see what's possible for, for them. And so this is what the, the campaign is about. So I hope that, you know, people can support it. And so we can all empower young girls in Africa, but also around the world to see what's possible when we dare to dream big and we dare to make a difference in our world. Well, I think you have done that. And uh, I'm sure that once people start reading the book, they'll become even more inspired. Thank you so much for joining me on The Daily Social Distancing Show and good luck. Thank you so much, Trevor, for having me. Bye. Don't forget, Elizabeth's book, I Am a Girl from Africa, comes out April 20th and is available for pre-order right now. All right, when we come back, the brilliant Issa Rae will be joining me on the show. So you don't wanna miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My guest tonight is an actor, a writer, and a producer of all your favorite things, Issa Rae. She's here to chat about her amazing career thus far and an exciting new partnership that she's kicking off. Issa Rae, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> hey, Trevor Noah, thank you for having me. Distanced. Yes, having you uh, very distanced. Although I feel like you have been somebody who 
I, I, I feel like you're always in my life. You know, like there are some people who make the kinds of shows that make you feel like you know them as a person. Like I would probably be one of your creepy fans who comes up to you in the streets and thinks I know you more than I do. I'm sure you have people like that because you make those kinds of shows where whenever I watch Issa Rae, I go like, I know her, Issa's my best friend, but we're not best friends. And I'm actually very creepy when I do that to you. Do you, do you have that a lot with people? Do they all feel like they know you? What a high compliment. Uh, yes, people do. I take it as a compliment until they start like insulting me and my character, my literal character. Um, but you know, I'd be glad to me on the street and thought you knew me. Um, I welcome it. What do you, what do you think that is? I, I've always wondered how you do that because like everyone can make a show. But, but when Issa Rae makes her show, there's, there's, a, there's a connectivity to it that, that connects people. Even if you give like a speech at an award show, there's, there's, a, there's a familiarity that you have that connects people to you. Have you ever wondered what that is? I haven't. I don't try to look a gift horse in the mouth. I, and it's not something that I realize until people may bring it up. Um, but I think for me, it just comes down to relatability. I do strive to like just find the commonality there and pray the only one that goes through things. I think what makes Insecure such a fantastic show and, and hopefully a show that'll change shows forever is you created a show in which black women specifically can occupy all spaces and places within society. You know, there's no, there's no archetype of what the black woman is supposed to be. You can be the lawyer, you can be the broke-ass friend, you can be the person who's focused, not focused, the person who's, you know. Um, there's something powerful in that, and I, I, I've always wanted to know whether you set out to create that or whether you were just replicating your world as you saw it. It's definitely the latter. It was, that, and I think that's what, the, what was the frustration about not seeing that on television for so long because I was surrounded by these women who occupied so many different spaces and I wasn't seeing that reflected on television. And it was just like, but this is my life. This is their life. This is my mom's friend's life. So what is the problem? Where's the disconnect now? And of course we had that during the earlier decades, but there was, you know, that dearth in the early 2000s. Right, um, right. 2000 to 2010, the odds. And it was just like, where, where are we? And where are these women that I know so well? And so I wanted to... Uh, intentionally reflect that world um, just because it was missing. The show has been extremely successful. And then you drop the bombshell on us and you tell us that Insecure is now coming to an end. The, the question is why? Because it's a story and good stories end. And, you know, even in, in pitching it that first season, I knew that I wanted to end it the fifth season. Princess and I talked about that and he was just like, yeah, I, that feels right. And so we've been building towards this journey to, to finish telling the story. I love watching television that kind of has a, that takes me on a, a story. Like there's nothing right, like right, a meandering right. story. And so for me, uh, I hope that people leave feeling satisfied. Like, oh, I'm glad I watched that. I'm glad I watched that story be told. I think everyone's gonna have that feeling. And what's cool is if you're an Issa Rae fan, I mean, from what I read in the magazines, there's not gonna be a shortage of Issa Rae in the world. Like, you are, you are doing mogul things is what the internet calls it. You know when, when Twitter goes like, oh, making money moves, <laughs> then you know like things are happening. Get the bag. Yeah, you're getting the bag, you're making the money moves. Uh, congratulations, first of all, because you, you are just making things. You've signed a giant deal. You're going to be creating everything across the board. Firstly, where do you find the time? Secondly, what are you now looking to do that you haven't already done? 
so much. I mean, I'm, thank you. I am, I have the time because I work with incredible people. And so like, you know, there's different arm company and people are, in, you have incredible taste and work very hard. Um, and then for me next, I just want to, I want to go behind the scenes. Like I, I love exploring the business parts of the industry. I love producing uh, the work of people who, who I'm a fan of. And uh, I have not made a film yet. Uh, that is my personal next goal. And yeah, there's just so much, so many things that I want to do and I don't want to just do anything to do it. I want to do things well. Um, talk, talk me, talk me th um, through your, your partnership with LifeWater. This is, this is really interesting. I saw, I saw money, I saw opportunity, and I saw Issa Rae, and I was like, all right, I want to know what this is all about. <laughs> what's, what's happening? <laughs> um, so I've always, in the spirit of collaboration, wanted to find other people to work with. And, you know, this, this industry right now talks so much about diversity and representation and where do you find these people? And it's like, we're trying to create the, the pipelines. Basically, LifeWater and I have partnered to hold a contest to, to find people and artists and creatives who need that opportunity to have their work be seen. Oh, wow. uh, they've they've uh, created a 20 bottles with the work of these various artists that we've hand selected. And then we're doing a contest to find five more and they'll get $10,000 uh, to have their work commissioned. I wonder if part of the reason you did this is because in many ways, your career was also started by the people. I mean, you know, your, your, your original show was this awkward black girl and here you had people on a Kickstarter saying, oh, we're gonna make this thing happen. Without that, you might not be here today or maybe the journey would have taken much longer. Without a doubt, I know what it's like to be in those early stages and be like, I just, if someone just sees my work, if just that right. one person believes me, you have a platform, then that could change the game for me or it could not, but I just need to either see this and be like, this is great or see this and be like, this sucks, don't ever try again. And so we are hopefully providing this platform for these artists and looking out for them in a way that the industry isn't necessarily doing. Um, specifically by having LifeWater commission a study to see like where there's uh, a lack of representation in these areas. It's visual art, fashion, music, and uh, filmmaking. Oh, okay. Issa Rae, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you. Thank you, Trevor. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, COVID vaccination efforts are underway across the globe. And to do your part, please consider supporting UNICEF. They're coordinating the delivery of 2 billion COVID-19 vaccine doses to more than 180 countries this year, with special attention to low-income countries, humanitarian settings, and war zones. By supporting UNICEF, you are supporting equitable vaccine distribution, testing, and treatments and you're helping to save lives. So if you can in any way, please go to the link below and donate whatever you can. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there. Wear a mask, get your vaccine, and remember, if you're getting a new boss, make sure to Google him first, just in case it's A-Rod. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. 
This has been a Comedy Central podcast.